Welcome back to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer is bravely leading with vision, innovation, and heart at the intersection of education, equity, and well-being. Simply put, Dina helps students learn how to learn. She helps learners of all ages experience less suffering and more motivation in their learning, no matter what kind of learning it is. Today, Dina and I chat about her book that's in need of a publisher, both of our lived experiences with learning, and her new initiative, hashtag learn that. Dina, it's a thrill to welcome you to Breaking Brave. Oh man, do I wish I had met you 20 years ago. Dr. Dina Schaefer blew my mind when I first met her and chatted with her. And I'm going to start off right off the hop here, uh, Dina, if it's okay if I call you Dina, to explain to us in your own words, what do you do? There's question one. And how did you come journey-wise to doing this that you do? Oh, I love it. So... Uh, The starting place for me, and I'll totally honor your question, I promise, but it has to be the biggest, deepest bow, gratitude. Thank you for having me here, Marilyn. Thank you to the helpers who got me here and believed in me. So that's Libby Wildman and Jill Bodak, who is also on your gorgeous podcast, speaking about her gorgeous book. And so... I have to, before going into like, what is it that I do? Why is it that I'm here? Is the deepest material of appreciation. So thank you. It means a whole lot for someone to ask about who on earth you are and what on earth you do and spend time and put that out into the world is such a gift. And I don't take that for granted or the minutes of your listeners. So thank you, kind listeners. So indeed, I am Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer, and my pronouns are she and her, and yes, call me Dina. Uh, I'm a very unfancy doctor. Uh, That doctor is from a PhD where I looked at questions about how we learn as impacted by nature and by other kinds of transformative and whole and healing strategies, which is really the answer to what is it I do? I try to make less suffering uh, in learning. I try to make less suffering for learners of all ages, all stages in their journey. So whether they are K-12 to or post-secondary or returning to post-secondary or mature students or certificate or diploma, or uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do this uh, online course, whatever iteration of learning, there can be all kinds of things that go awry where it doesn't feel like it makes sense or it doesn't feel fair or it doesn't feel welcoming or it doesn't feel clear or it doesn't feel kind. I try to make that better in that space between the teaching thing and the learning thing. That's what I do. (laughs) That's That's the concision of what I do. Well, we'll get into specifics right now, but I wish you'd been in my life when I had two young kids And we did talk about this before we jumped on the podcast with diagnosis of ADHD and medications and just the when you said the word suffering, very, very unusual in in, in me hearing that word that you would describe 
learning challenges for anybody as suffering, but it's so true. Yeah. It can be hell, absolute hell. It can leave so many eager and excited and hungry students feeling shame, feeling lonely, feeling like, what on earth am I doing? And that's the space I want to get in because it's a system problem. It's a system conundrum, not a human being problem. And I can make it better, that bridge between that desire to learn and then what actually happens, especially when the system falls flat, when the curriculum falls flat, when the pedagogy leaves a student cold or hurt. Uh, That's where I love to swoop in is when it gets really tough and messy. And so how did you come to see this light? How did you come to find this passion, this calling, this love of teaching learners how to learn? All I think I know of this journey is that you were a teacher once upon a time. I love that you call it love. It is. I can see it when you talk about it in your eyes. Your whole expression just lights up because you have absolutely nailed your passion. But how did you come to it? I guess I'm wondering about what did you go through to to find this as your place? Yeah. And that's, I so appreciate being asked. It's that rare moment where someone says, I really, I really care about the path to here. Tell me about it. What a kindness. What a kindness. Um, I became a teacher, a high school teacher, not because I was a camp counselor, not because I'm an extrovert, not because I love the performative piece. I fell into it. I I simply fell into it because of my justice leanings, because of my philosophy degree and my undergrad. Of all of the seeds that I planted of what am I going to do, that's the one that took hold. That's the one that started to sprout. And so I did my teacher training And lo and behold, while I wasn't necessarily the most informed teacher about the history of this book, or I wasn't the most skilled at, here are the technical aspects of writing and grammar, I found an early place where I could be of use when a student was struggling to understand what the point was of this text, or how to get along with their teachers when they felt like, oh, there's some friction there. I could help students get themselves organized in their thoughts. I could listen with full presence and soundboard and pull out their ideas and something was happening. I didn't know what it was called then, but something was happening then for the students, for the better, and for me, for understanding what my gift actually is, the thing that I wanted to do. And then from there, it continued to ripple out. Oh, look at the ways I can help when students are struggling with procrastination. Look, I can help and be of of service when a student is struggling to the point of panic with perfectionism. And it turns out that that is a whole field. That's the field of learning strategies. And I am aware, and I remember saying this to you when, when you and I met, At first value, like at sort of first blush, that is literally the most boring, potentially boring job title in the world. I'm a learning strategist or I'm a learning specialist.
the person who does that, these like kind of weirdo misfit people across the country, across North America who do this work of learning strategies. And in Australia and New Zealand, I think it's called tertiary learning. It's the connective tissue of learning. It's the skills that are underneath whether or not you are in midwifery or in industrial design or in chemical engineering. There are approaches to learning, as it turns out. Get really fancy and call that metacognition, like learning about learning. But I actually love it at the most unscientific, like the, the, the most accessible version. That's where I love to swim because there's never been a time where I've explained the brain science of what's happening where students are like, whoa, that's like really helpful. It's in the doing it. It's in the co-creating. It's in the co-designing. It's in the MacGyvering our way out of a conundrum. And so from there, and being a high school teacher for students who are really struggling with addiction, learning disabilities, mental health issues, I moved into the post-secondary uh, world where I became the lone learning strategist on a campus in service of students who formerly, formally had diagnoses of some kind, so potentially cancer, and the medication was, was impacting memory, was impacting how do I study? How do I actually even remember where my classroom is on campus? I would work with students with such profound depression or anxiety and coming in and out of hospitalization, how do we bridge back into um, going to classes? What does it mean when I have ADHD and potentially other learning conundrums happening, all layered, all happening all at once, and I'm really trying with my whole heart and my whole guts to pay attention in a lecture? That's the place where I love to swim and research and write and teach and keynote and offer whatever strategies I have. Because born from all of those years is a kind of desire for us, like low cost and biggest reach to help students and parents of students when learning isn't going so well. We need one of you in every single classroom in the whole world. Absolutely. Did you struggle as a student, Dina, Dr. Dina, Dina? <laughs> Can you relate to the learners? Did you struggle and therefore suffer so that there is a part of your heart that's like, I get this because I have lived experience in this area? Yeah. I can feel with me my my mentor, Joanne Delaire, who's the campus elder at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson, where I worked for over a decade. And she would always talk about how important it is to essentially walk the walk first. And indeed, um, I have. Not in every way, of course, not in every iteration. But mine looked like I'm a first-generation student, which means I was the first in my family to attend higher education. Now, I am in a white, able body that affords many, many privileges privileges on the backs of other people. And that's the work that I've committed my life to doing deep unlearning and proactive justice work, particularly in spaces of learning. But as a first-generation student, what that meant was there was no testing for, for me for anything that may have been happening that was tricky with my learning. Like that wasn't a conversation that was happening in my house. My parents wouldn't have known to navigate that uh, when I was st 
struggling in some courses much more than others, there was no language of learning disability or why don't we ask somebody. But more profoundly in terms of how I know and where that heart piece comes in, that live, that walk, the walk piece comes in, is that both my parents died when I was young, when I was in my mid-20s. I was their primary caregiver. And it was a like the most profound honor to be alongside them as they passed. But it also meant, uh, you know, post-traumatic um, post-traumatic grief, complex grief, uh, anxiety. And all the while I was doing a master's, uh, I was doing my PhD. Some of it I can't really remember because of how disconnected I was. I went on and continued to do my PhD when I was pregnant. I had two children. That's not a disability, but it is an impact on learning. So I have the experience of profound trauma, trauma that has shaped my life and my kind of now innate devotion to try to create pathways of ease for people, for parents, for learners. It's it's meant a commitment to uh, justice and equity and how to not just be in service of students who know how to function in the system, who know the language of the system. I'm thinking about all the folks who don't, who might well have a diagnostic statement, but like don't know how to access or can't access the doctors or the paperwork to make that happen. So I'm a student who never participated in those systems. I never went to a tutor. I never got extra support or extra help. I never had my kind of learning profile and uh, challenges with how I learn looked at. You just had to do it without question, the way that it was given to you, and your parents helped you the best they could. So I was lucky in some ways. My my parents both, you know, English was their first language. I went to school in English. So there were some absolutely privileges that were on my side. And then there were others that were absolutely hard-fought and roadblocks. And so my, the sufferings that I know will be much different than the sufferings of others. But I know enough about what it is to learn when there's much more going on. When you are trying with your, with everything you have in you to be present when someone is speaking, when you're writing a test, when you're giving a presentation, and uh, you're also in the throes of trauma. That's on my mind. That's front of mind for me and front of heart. Every time I teach, every time I design curriculum, every time I teach other teachers is what else is happening in this room that you will never specifically know about, but can open your heart broadly enough to account for it, to welcome every human being that you encounter whether or not you know the specificity of what it is they're experiencing. Thank you for your work. Thank you for that explanation. Wow. I got so many roads I could go down right now. Let's talk about the parents' side of this. And it's kind of like two sides of, if you wrote something on one side of a page of a book and you then you closed it, it would be a mirror image in ink. The students and their suffering or 
difficulties or hurdles or all of the above obviously affects the parents. And so how do you help the parents help the kids? Or how do you help the parents just cope with, you know, my kid's not doing well in school or isn't getting the A's that I expected or 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 is coming home and saying they are sick or don't want to go to school anymore because there's some anxiousness and issues and things like that. The parents are just as involved, but obviously they're seeing it through different eyes. So how do you help them, Dina? Oh, I love that. You know, it happened very organically. It was emergent. The most of my life has been in front of students directly. And that's how I've come to know so much of what I know. But my work with parents started before I was a parent, when I would participate in curriculum nights or there would be a parent orientation. And I would share with them my favorite learning strategies. I would show them assignment calculators that broke down, you know, big projects to make them much more doable and much less overwhelming. I would show them the most efficient study strategies that wouldn't have their learner up until the wee hours. And the parents would be on the edge of their seats. They would be leaning all the way in as if I were like their favorite singer. They they would say, I, I never knew this, or I went about it all wrong when I was a kid, or I'm so glad you said that because the strategies I'm sharing from what worked for me when I was a student aren't working at all for my kid. And in fact, it's creating more disharmony in the family. And so I knew that something was there with parents because I would meet so very many students who would say, and I would be meeting them sometimes in their fourth year, their fifth year, their sixth year. And they say, I've never learned this before. I've never seen this before. And they would say, man, I wish I knew this sooner. So then you start thinking, okay, how can I reach teachers? And definitely I reach teachers. You know, I created with um, Dr. Diana Breacher, we created a, you know, national like thriving learning strategies program that, that went across Canada. We were able to train other teachers. But again, when I would be you know, at my kid's dance recital and a, and a parent, you know, we would just be chit-chatting and the parent would go, what do you do? What do you do? And I would say, I'm a learning strategist. And they would cock their head like, what on earth is that? Be like, fair enough. <laughs> and I would share what I do. The next sentence would be, oh my God, can I ask you, my kid isn't doing their homework. What do I do? Oh my God, my kid hasn't gone to school in three days. What do I do? Oh my gosh, my kid didn't go to school all last year. Oh my goodness. And then... Now bridge that into the world of what do we all hear day in, day out? Pandemic learning gaps. We hear it all the time. I would be, I would be devastated if I were a young learner who just went through all of that. And now I've got to worry like, oh, and I'm behind and I don't know stuff and I don't know how to learn and I don't know how to have relationships with people because that's the messaging. So that's now the kind of laser focus for me. I'm still in the classroom teaching. I'm still supporting staff and teachers, but I want to reach as many parents because we say that teachers are frontline. So are parents. So are parents when their kids come home and go, I actually don't know how to do this homework. And when the parent then says, well, didn't you ask the teacher 
And the kid goes, well, no, or I don't know how, or I'm scared, or I'm not sure what to ask. Or when their kid says, actually, I, you know, I know it's reading week. I know it's October, but I'm not going back to my first year. That's where I can be helpful because I'm pretty sure we've never taught parents the learning strategies and the language of how to get in there too, of how to help their kids so it's not two o'clock in the morning and the homework question or the essay question or the lab report or the science problem set still isn't done and it's due in the morning and what do we do? The, if done incorrectly, and I might be the living, breathing example of learning done incorrectly because way back then when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, there was one way to teach it And there was one way to learn it, and you either got it or you didn't get it. And if you didn't get it, there was a designation of stupid, quote unquote. Like you said, they didn't understand. They didn't bother to test or anything, anything back then. But that label or that feeling or that designation given to you by a parent, you're stupid, you don't get it. It travels with you in your soul for the rest of your life. And I'll share a small little story right here. I had a lot of difficulty with mathematics. I had no problem with art, creative, writing, things like that. But when it came to math and science, I just didn't give a shit, to be honest. So I'd never wanted to learn my times tables, but my mother decided that flashcards was the way to go. Even saying that, I get jittery. And I go through life with a label saying... I'm no good at, because a parent or a teacher somewhere along the line said, you're no good at. And that can be just devastating as people move forward in their careers. I see it in the work that I do with creativity. Oh, I've been told I'm not creative. Well, wait a second. Who gets to put that label on you that you have to carry around like a bag of sand behind you for the rest of your life? Let's let's actually just do this here and now. How can anyone listening right now connect with you, Dina? Because I'm sure there's a million parents all across the world who are like, I need to get to know this woman right away. So how do they reach you, find you, follow you, all those things? Let's do the promotional call out right now because they, they're going to need to know your, your, your uh, email, your phone, everything's going to be lighting up. Oh my gosh, you're so wonderful. And gosh, do I want to respond to every part of your math story because my whole being just crumpled. <laughs> so how people can get in touch and uh, what a delight that would be. So on Instagram, I'm at Awakened Learning. And my website is that too. I'm www.awakenedlearning.ca. And how people can interact is I run parent circles. I have parent circles coming up in May and June. And people might be thinking, uh, yeah, the school year's over. Well, it almost, but not quite. So indeed, I'm at the end of the kind of how do you read and how do you study and how do you essay write that form of parent circle. But I have a question and answer free for anyone to come and I'll share the the details with you to accompany um, this podcast. But at the end of May, I'm offering for folks to come and ask their questions like, what do I do right now? We have three more weeks and we have a final exam and a final performance and a final presentation. Great. Let's hash it out. Let's like quick and dirty. Let's get you what you need. 
Uh, and I also then have two subsequent sessions, standalone, uh, low cost, low barrier. Money is never going to be an issue. Uh, I want to share this with as many parents as possible. Uh, and so one is around ending the year strong. And so I'm going to talk about the final elements of, okay, I get it. We haven't had, you know, a beautiful eight months of scaffolding, the top of the top learning strategies, but all is not lost. Here's how you're going to edit your final papers. Here's how you're going to efficiently get to that studying. Here's how you're going to take those tests, especially multiple choice. <laughs> so we're going to get through those final pieces. And then the final, the final thing I'll offer before the summer and everyone scatters for a while is uh, I'll be offering a parent circle around what did we what did we learn this year? Like what happened this year? What went so right? And what was oh that I just never want to do that again. What can we ask our learners before they forget, so they can make a meaning, so they can transfer some of their own wisdom and hard-fought learning this year about what absolutely served them well. And frankly, then what was disastrous, not just scholastically, but for their well-being. What was it like to be them as a student this year? So that when we get to September and the school year starts again, we're not just back to the same old well-worn habits or our go-to that actually don't serve us very well. We have some way to start so that we don't find ourselves at the end of the fall going, oh man, I just filed my third test in a row for another year. Oh man, I feel like I don't have a friend in the world. I really don't like my teacher and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to move through what feels so stuck. So that's how people can get in touch with me. I do offer one-on-ones, but the most accessible way is I share strategies on Instagram. I offer parent circles. And if anyone out there, <laughs> I'm going to go bold here, Marilyn. I'm going to go, I'm just going to go, I'm going to leave it all on the dance floor. If anyone is an agent, book agent, if anyone is a publisher, I am trying with my whole heart to get my half-written book currently titled Awaken Learning, Raising Well Learners out into the world. And that's a tough slog. So if anyone, if anyone wants to champion that project, um, man, you would leave me weak in the knees. I understand based on the research that I've done that it's not because of the wealth of information that you're <laughs> halfway sharing with the halfway written book. It's the fact that they want you to have bazillions of followers on Instagram and Facebook, and you have to have a social network, and you have to do this and this and this. They're not looking at the substance of what you're communicating. They're looking at the substance of the audience that you bring to the table, and that's so sad. You've got it. You've got it. And it's been a huge, a huge learning for me this year. You know, I, I thought that people write books because it comes from that, ooh, that place deep in them as an offering into the world. And mm -hmm. I was writing this book from that and also in response to like countless parents going, do you have a book? Can I like how I, I need this now. I, I need all of this right now uh, because it isn't being taught. And 
I, it's like no amount of academic publications or magazine publications, all that stuff's out there. I've been doing that for years. No amount of, you know, keynotes or courses. I've been teaching to like big classrooms of 250 students, doesn't matter. Agents will say to me, whoa, so you're doing this work around learning just after the pandemic. You are equity-guided, anti-racist educator, totally informed by well-being. This is it. Like you're, you're really, this is it. This is the work we need. And you don't have enough Instagram followers. Literally is the sentence I'll get. So here's what I'm doing. Can I tell you what I'm doing to subvert the system? Yes, because <laughs> subverting the system is kind of my mantra in life. Oh, bless. So, you know, I live on the edges. I try to be at the outermost progressive, innovative edges of what's happening in teaching and learning and conversations about well-being or well-becoming. And so that means that when I get an email, for example, back from an agent that says you don't have enough Instagram followers... I can't actually go down the route of getting ads for more followers. I, I can't go down the route of um, paying somebody $2,000 a month <laughs> to post, post dozens a day um, that may or may not look or feel or sound like the truest thing that I'm trying to offer. I can't go down the route. Oh, the words lead, magnet, and funnel uh, leave me cold and disoriented. <laughs> if you could see everyone, Marilyn's face right now is the best. It's how I feel on my insides. I love that. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, it, that's just completely opposite to who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. It's that visceral thing of like, nope, not values aligned, not values aligned. So here's what I'm trying to do. This project, yes, comes from me, but actually isn't about me. It's about learners and it's about parents. And it's about not me being an expert, but about reminding students, reminding learners of their own inner expertise. We don't have to buy a master's class. We don't have to buy anything actually. Like there's, there's no product here. There is an approach. And so what I've started is hashtag learn that. And I'm inviting a hundred Folks from across uh, the industries and walks of life and ways of being and ways of doing and certainly ways of learning. And I'm asking them, what was the hardest thing you ever had to learn? And how did you learn that? I'm sharing 60 to 90 second stories on Instagram and on my LinkedIn. Again, there's no product here. It's not a trick. It's not a sleight of hand. It's to share with any learner at any stage that people have, have found and created the most magnificent and thoughtful and skillful ways of getting through what was very, very tough. So I have folks who talk about climbing the corporate ladder and learning what success was through actually the breakdown of their body. And that success to them had more about humility than they had realized. So learning through pain and illness, what the truest sense of success was and what and how important humility was. I have Jill. Jill came, Jill Bodak. She came and talked about how to learn soft movements through injury, how to move in a different way. I have single parents talk about, I learned 
how to decision-make, as overwhelming as it felt, by doing just this day's, this one day's worth of decisions. That's, that's what I can do. I have also people talking about, well, this is how I learned how not to fail stats class for the third time. So I have every kind of situation and, and more to the point of how to learn, the strategy of how to learn. And so I want that to ripple out. And if that reaches and spreads and grows an audience authentically through no magnet or lead or anything, then how beautiful, because it's a way of using social media for good and with integrity. And uh, that counts for me so much more. I just have faith that the Awakened Learning book will come. And my hope is someday soon. So I'll have to just practice patience until then. Hey, Marilyn, can I ask you your learn that? Before we do that, yeah, I was going to share it whether you asked me for it or not. It's like I was just going to blast into it. So hashtag learn that. So so what do people do? Do they make a video? Do they upload? Do they write a story? Like, how do you collect this content? I hate using the word content when we were just slagging the social media, but <laughs> how how can people participate and submit hashtag learn that? Do you know what you teach me? You teach me about how... There is a space and welcome for generosity in, in entrepreneurship. You are asking me in this way and that to share the work that I do, to reach more people, to be of service to more. And it is so kind. There is, uh, there is such generosity of spirit. So thank you. How people can participate with Learn That if they want to share the thing it was so hard for them to learn. And how did they learn that? Because they want others to, maybe for a moment, they they see that and they're like, oh, that's such a good strategy. I love that strategy. I want to incorporate that into my own. They can DM me on Instagram. They can message me on LinkedIn. They can email me at info at awakenlearning.ca and say, hey, can you interview me? They can send me, just they can email me. They can Dropbox me. Uh, I have stories coming at every angle, at every time. And so my goal is 100, although we could blow it out of the water and do 200 this year, to share these learn that stories and use these social platforms to not make people, and thank God he's sore because it really makes me feel good, to not make people feel like shit, but to actually highlight in their own voice, in their own way, messy and honest. There's no like set backdrop. There's, there's, it's the most organic, sweet, earnest project where people can share really their hard-won, lived, learned wisdom of how, of how they learned something that was hard. Laura Louise. I think that's brilliant because you're creating a community of people supporting people. And I feel like I'd be so fascinated to watch, listen, read, however these hashtag learn that stories are being will be sent out into the world. I would be really interested to hear how other people did it. And and there's got to be some gems in there, treasures of, wow, I never thought of doing that. But now that you mention it, that might work so well. So my story, I'm not going to judge it. I'm just going to put it out there. So it goes back to, no kidding, the flashcards and mathematics. So I had to learn math. I mean, basic math. On the flashcards, there were dots. So five was two dots on the top and two dots on the bottom with one dot in the middle. And so this may 
I'm not going to judge. When I am required, even now at this age, to do, you know, five plus six, if it's written out as an equation, I honestly kind of squint my eyes and I don't see the five and I don't see the six. I see the five as the dots, two, two, one in the middle. And I see the six as three, three standing beside each other, three dots and three dots. And that goes back to when I was five years old. And that's how I do math is I I kind of squint in my head and I picture the flashcards with the dots on it. And that's how I count. So I learned how to do calculations based on visually seeing the number as dots. I am obsessed with that answer. You have now given full permission, which I think is how I now newly want to phrase what Learn That does, is it's full permission to share the wonderful and weird ways that we figured out how to do something that totally worked for us. So full permission now for anyone who listens if the numbers themselves are dizzying, if it has a, you know, an embodied reaction of anxiety, holy smokes, try dots, right? Try song, try rhyme, try art, try aloud, try any which way. Even if you've been taught there is one way, oh gosh, I mean, if that's my singular message, <laughs> there is no one way. There is no one way. You made it friendly for yourself. You made the math problem friendly. And that's part of it. I can think of all the processes that went into doing that, including how you also like regulated or coped. You found a way to cope with a question that had left you out. That's equally riveting to me as like the technique is also, wow, in your body, you made a change too, which gave you access to doing it. The confidence that's there the creativity that's there. Thank you for that. I am I am genuinely obsessed with your answer. I love it. Everyone try dots. I think, I think that insight for me, and I am no teacher, have no teaching background whatsoever, but I think when you have your own kids and you have empathy towards the fact that they are suffering, and here were my kids trying to I don't know, what the hell were they trying to do? They maybe were trying to apply for the SSATs. Yes. You got SATs and the PSATs, the standardized tests. Yeah, Yeah. you got it. Yeah, all those. So my my daughter was trying to study for those. And there was a vocabulary section. And and (laughs) to this day, and she's going to be 30 this year, I can say the word to her clandestine, and she will just pee herself laughing. Because the only way we could make vocabulary words mean anything to her as a, I don't know, 10-year-old, maybe 12, was to draw it. And so we had a blank art notebook that just had blank pages in it. And so what does clandestine look like? So we decided it would be clam-destine. So it was the bottom of the ocean with a whole bunch of little clams. Psst, hey, I have a secret. And that's the meaning of clandestine. And it was clamdestine, but she knew that it was an N, not an M. But it was clams telling secrets to each other. And she says she's not a teacher, folks. <laughs> that was incredible. I'm not. It was a desperate, it was a it was a desperate if I was in your shoes, which I think is exactly what you're doing. You're walking in the shoes of the learner. If I was in your shoes and I got asked on a test 
what does clandestine mean? Immediately, my silly mother with a picture of the little clams at the bottom of the ocean telling secrets to each other would come to my mind. You made it fun. You made it meaningful. You brought in relationship. And in the joy of that, there is a kind of um, intervention and overwhelm. You gave her a funny memory to return to. There are so many waypoints for a learner then when they go in to be tested that even though we can argue and say that style of testing, scrap it, or the style of teaching that you know gives you a list of things just on their own without any context to, to remember, you were the bridge to make it doable. That's who I want to reach because we can say the system is fraught. It is fraught. And also they're still going to have to take a test. And also they're still going to have to go to class tomorrow or do that homework or we're, we're a little bit stuck. So until the system is dismantled, that's exactly the kind of strategy that I, I want to share far and wide so that if a student has 200 pages of reading, how are they going to do it? How are they going to do it if there's also a learning disability? How are they also going to do it if they're reading in a language that isn't their primary one? How are they going to do it if they're also working in a job that takes hours and energy? And how are they going to do it if they're caregiving? That's the conversation I want to be having in every direction, that all those constellations that people are living that make those learning experiences so tight around paying attention, around taking notes, around uh, organizing our work and moving through task initiation, which is just fancy for how do I start when I don't want to start, when it's hard to start. Motivation, which is how do I keep going when I don't want to, when it's boring when it's hard, when it's dense, when it feels irrelevant and purposeless? How do I show up and do group work if I'm feeling desperately isolated and alone? That's where I want to get in and just like strategy the heck out of that. (laughs) The whole world is on board with this. I'd like to talk about bravery for a second here because that's the whole reason we're here chatting. What does bravery mean to you, Dina? Just gut reaction on that question? The word, (laughs) the word like um, surviving and still standing is the first thing, as unpoetic as it might be. But I think about what it means to have catastrophic loss and to keep going anyways, and not just keep going flat and sort of dispassionate but to keep digging and itching for those moments of aliveness, those moments of being in service, those moments of making use of loss to bolster another human being. That's what I imagine my life to be a little bit in this teaching and learning space is that I I picture myself a little bit like if you were in child's pose but I, as a as a rock, like I'm a I'm a little I'm a stepping stone, quite literally, for students to step or jump or leap in whatever direction they want to go. That because I was able to survive, for me the hardest things, and so early, and then to have you know there's no safety net, like to really try to still do life, awake and kind. What a, what a joy, what a thing of beauty to then be that in child's pose rock, to be like, sweet, 
go do the thing, go do the midwifery thing, go do the engineering thing, go do the architecture thing, go do the nursing thing, go do the HVAC repair thing, like whatever your thing is. Um, may I be alongside you for a short while um, and help you leap. So I don't know, there's something in there for me about <laughs> bravery. The visualness you can tell with the whole clandestine and the clams at the bottom of the ocean, everything to me is a visualization, hence the dots. But I see you in this beautiful babbling brook, just soaking wet in all of these strong students stepping on your back. And as you say, leaping or walking or even hesitating, but then going forward with a step. It's a beautiful image and it's such a, it's, it's a poetic way of describing exactly what you do. Thank you. Talking about poetic, I'm going to ask you about something that was published in the spring of 2013, and I think it might have first been no launched shit. in March. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going there. Something that was published in the spring of 2013, if you're okay with this, um, and if you're not, you just say don't, um, in Montreal, maybe? And it's called the Gray Tote. Can you tell our listeners what that is? If 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 I'm not stepping in the wrong place it's here, it's totally okay. It just like takes my breath away because nobody knows that I am a poet, and that's okay because the deep spiritual part of me, and I mean this really, like it's not self-deprecating. I mean this like in a really okay way. We're all kind of nobody's like passing through, you know. So it's I'm not I'm not sitting here going like. Um, people should know who I am. I just, maybe, maybe you're the 10th person who, who, you know, encountered that I wrote a poetry book. So it's very touching to me because it brings me back to a moment that I tried so hard to have something to say in these tight poems that are so fierce and sad and hopeful about death and dying. And so indeed, I had a book called The Grey Tote, published by Vehicle Press. Wonderful editor, Carmen Starnino and Simon Dardick. And it was my first ever book launch. And I had a three-month-old on my hip. And I read these poems that are about living all the way alive and how we can lose also to the very depths. And there it was. That's I had a I had a book published. I had a moment. And so what I had done was you know, my mother had passed away of uh, lung cancer when I was uh, 28. And that was just two years after my father had passed away of esophageal cancer. And I had been their, I'd been their go-to human in life and also their go-to human um, in, in the real uh, challenges of uh, medical care and trying to live as well and as long as you can. And I turned that into uh, a very meaningful book for me. Now, I just a, a word of warning. I would I strongly recommend you don't read it before a celebration. I, I strongly encourage you read it with a glass of wine, <laughs> just a little, just a little bit of support because it it doesn't shy away from the dark stuff. But um, that was a real moment. I, that was a real moment in my life to have made something very beautiful and very creative. That actually, my parents, my father had been a writer that he would have been very proud of, that put into the these tiny poetic moments of how we treat death and dying in this in this current moment, in this context. So thank you for asking me, because it it meant a whole lot. And it also feels like a lifetime ago. Both are true. 
Thank you. Dina, what would you like to say to the world right now before we wrap up and say goodbye? And we could totally talk for days, you and I. But if there's people listening that are parents who are struggling with kids who are struggling, if there are learners who are struggling, suffering, can I just maybe leave us with some words of wisdom or just whatever comes to mind before we wrap up and say goodbye? Yeah, I love that. I would say something around the starting place of every learning strategy, holistic learning strategy. So mind, you know, heart, uh, body, spirit strategy that I offer is around language. So if we were to say to a learner, regardless of the age, or even to ourselves, if we're going, I have many friends who are now going back and they're studying to be a psychotherapist. They're going to get retrained for a third career. So it's really learners of all ages. If it occurs, you know, first flash in the mind is, to say to another, to say to a child, to say to yourself, you just have to learn how to manage your time better. You just have to learn how to prioritize. Oh, why can't you pay attention? If we start heading in that direction, that like pause, deep breath, that was handed down, that's not, it's not actually the way it has to go. Those are generic, shaming, and like unhelpful. There's no, there's no way to get into that. Instead, could we offer to our child, to our, uh, you know, teenage learner, to our adult learner, to ourselves, if we are going back to learn, what is actually the, the most meaningful word or words away from the generic? Okay, so if I'm talking about procrastination, how do I make this thing that feels so big and hard to start doable and incremental and small? How can I not beat myself up for how kind of fragmentation of, of attention and participate little by little in practices that restore my capacity to stick to the task at hand? We can move away from empty, punishing words that don't mean anything. Manage What does it mean to manage your time? Like, does anyone actually to manage it? It's a relationship with time. It's understanding how I have stuff to do and here's the time to do it. What is the interaction? How do I marry those two? So the words of wisdom, messy as they may be, are can we just watch the tone and the spirit and potentially the emptiness of those first reactive words that aren't even probably what we mean and really with like the deepest self-compassion, we just inherited those because they were like thrust upon us. And maybe we don't have to do that style of learning or coaching or nudging our own selves anymore. That'd be my starting place. That's the most beautiful place in the world because you're right. It's shaming. It's negative and it's dismissive. And nobody at any age, whether they're one or whether they're 101 and they're trying to learn or wanting to learn, wants to be put in a dismissive, shaming place ever. Think about what happens in the body. Think about that, that person's sense of motivation, their sense of connection, their sense of hope and possibility. I think you're spot on. Nobody wants to feel that way in any facet of their life. And that, that approach only separates us from that beautiful, dreamy goal, whatever it is, and career and internship, 
a, a cool work study position, a volunteer thing, the next gig, the the side hustle, the the main soul prop, like whatever the whatever the dream is. That like just do that thing better, but like how? Cool, let's start a revolution of how. How do you relate to time? <laughs> how do we listen when other people speak? How do I take notes if I'm meant to be learning either online or in a classroom space? How do I do that stuff? There are absolutely ways. There are ways to help in the moment and to circle back to something you had so thoughtfully and tenderly shared. There are ways to heal all that crap that happened in the earliest school years. There are ways through so that we can keep on those stepping stones going to those beautiful places that we really, really want to go and head towards. Thank you, Dina. I can't say enough about the words that you've shared with the world today and how much hope, that's the best word, that you've given to everybody who's listening, whether they're parents or whether they're learners. As I know, we've all experienced hurdles and there are more to come, I'm sure. So thank you so much. Please come back. And I say that because the world wants to know if you got yourself a publisher. And I want to hear all about the hashtag learn that. And, you know, different times of year require different kinds of chats. So maybe this fall you can come back and just say, hey, let's take a pulse on how everything's going. So thank you so much, Dina, for coming to Breaking Brave and for enlightening the world with a sense of hope. You are a gift. This is a gift. Thank you for what you do and how you do what you do. And thank you to everyone in the scarcity of minutes that we all feel for listening with your heart, you know. Thank you for the deep honor of being here. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, marilynbarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.